On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. For anyone who's been following this series, they'd be excused to think that last time was the final episode. But no, it's this one where we're (laughs) going to be talking about the return of Jesus. And we are still in Jerusalem in a particular place. Just describe where we are, Mike. Well, we're sitting right at the corner of the western and southern walls of that great rampart that held that great courtyard that was built with the temple that would have towered right above it. And we're sitting in sort of among archaeological remains that come from that time when Jerusalem was destroyed. Rather ironic that, you know, Herod the Great built this as perhaps the greatest of all his building projects. He died long before it was finished and his son continued it. And it was only about four years or so, four or five years between the temple being finally completed and the Romans utterly destroying it again. And despite that destruction, there's a surprising amount still here. I mean, these Herodian blocks of stone are enormous. Yeah, they're absolutely huge, and the mind boggles really at, you know, how they got them here, how they moved them. And the ones that we're seeing here, David, you know, really aren't all that big compared to the foundation stones, which you can still see today if you go down into what's called the temple tunnels. Uh, And there you can find foundation stones that are, I mean, almost the size of a a coach or a single deck bus. They are huge and they would have been brought here from the quarries on rollers, been put into place with block and tackle and so on. So it is absolutely amazing. Of course, not all the stones here are from the time of Herod. So even as we look at the wall now, you know, we can see uh, a layer, first of all, that is the remains of Herod's temple. And then there's some from the Crusader period and then from a later period still. So there's a whole mixture there. But certainly just round the corner on the Western Wall, we've got the remains there of that retaining wall as it would have been in the time of Jesus, And I always find it fascinating to come here and to think that Jesus looked at this most phenomenal building. I mean, it was huge in comparison to ordinary people's homes in those days. And Jesus once came here with his disciples and, you know, they looked at it and they marveled and said, whoa, Lord, look at these fantastic buildings and stones. And Jesus prophesied, you know what? Not one stone will be left on top of another. And it's absolutely true, there's not a sign of the temple remains up on the top there. All we've got are what remains of the walls that held up that great platform. And just down below where we've been walking, there's a corner piece from what would obviously have been a parapet. Uh, And it says on it in Hebrew, to the trumpeter. And it looks like it was a direction to the trumpeter, those who blew the shofar to mark certain times and seasons and festivals, that would have been the corner place where we have stood and we're just looking right over it right now. So this was a phenomenal place in Jesus's time, but he prophesied it would all come tumbling down one day and it did. And he did all that in the context of teaching in a wider way about our theme for today, his return. Yes, here we are 2,000 years on. He hasn't returned, 
But what's the connection between where we are then and what he said about his return? Well, he did a lot of the teaching about his return right here uh, in Jerusalem. Why? Because this, of course, was the very hub of Jewish religion. Up on the mound up above it would have been that temple, the very heart of Jewish faith. The temple seen, of course, as the very throne of God here on earth. And it will be while his disciples are walking by here that they'll have this conversation uh, as they're looking at this. And, and Jesus promises them uh, in Matthew 24, the beginning of that, I tell you the truth, not one of these stones will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives then, they just walked across to that hill just the other side of the Kidron Valley. We can see it from here. The disciples came to him and privately and said, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of our age? Now, as good Jews, they associated all that as being one event. Uh, but Jesus sort of separates. He knew there would be two events. There would be the event of the destruction of this temple behind us. And that would be a picture of the greatest then event in the future of human history. The personal return of Jesus to this earth to, to wrap everything up in God's plan. When you say wrap everything up, what do you mean? Well, Jesus taught that at the end of human history, he is going to return to this earth to gather to himself all who have ever believed in him, whether they have died or whether they are still alive at that time, to take them to be with him, to remove all wickedness, to judge all those who have rejected him and rejected God's ways, to bring about an end of life as we know it and to gloriously transform it. You know, Christians often think, perhaps rather casually, they oversimplify and talk about us spending eternity in heaven with Jesus. Well, actually, the end of the Bible makes very clear that Christians won't be spending all eternity in heaven. In his final vision, John sees heaven coming down to earth. And he sees the earth as we now know it being gloriously transformed just as much as Jesus' body had been transformed at his resurrection so that it can become God's beautiful new creation restored back to how he wanted it to be at the beginning. And it's there with our resurrection bodies that we'll be spending eternity with Jesus. How did Jesus help us to understand this? Well, he, he did it in the way that he so often did it when he wanted people to understand. He taught parables about it. And it's interesting in, in Matthew 24, having talked and prophesied about some of the signs of the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70 in the Jewish-Roman War, and then of some of the bigger cosmic signs that would accompany his return at the end of the age, he, he went on to say, but the thing is, nobody knows when that will be. Not even him as the Son of God here on earth. He said, only the Father in heaven. But he went on to tell them parables so that they would always 
be ready for that event whenever it was. And there's a collection of three in Matthew chapter 25, which is the parable of the ten servants, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and goats. And perhaps we could just focus on one of those to pick out some key points about the return of Jesus. Now, I need to jump here quickly and say, you know, in a short program like ours, we cannot look at every nook and cranny of the teaching about the return of Jesus in the Bible. And I'm almost certainly going to disappoint someone because I, I won't perhaps touch on, on their particular favoured theory. But what I am going to try and do is to stick to the core basic truths, which I think all Christians should be able to agree upon. So let's read uh, Matthew 25 from verse 1, which is the first of those three parables. At that time, which time? Well, at the time of Jesus's return is what he's talking about here. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamp and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but didn't take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Oh, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So picture language, but who is who in that story? <laughs> yeah, he's using what would have been a very familiar picture to people, what happened at a, a wedding. And remember, Jesus's parables were rooted in either everyday life or well-known events in life. And here he, he talks about a wedding, the bridegroom, of course, refers to him. He's the one that's waiting for. The ten servants divided into two groups are, are those who are ready for when he eventually comes and, and those who aren't ready. Now, what's all this talk about, you know, being ready and it going on and they're falling asleep? Well, you know, we have in the West a tradition of the bride being late very often, don't we, for the church ceremony. But here it's the bridegroom who ends up being late. Now, weddings were normally held in an evening in those days, which is why lamps feature so much. Don't think lamps like torches like we would have, but poles with rags wrapped around them, tied to them, that would then have been dipped in oil and lipped. And what would happen is the bridesmaids would go from the bride's home in a torch-lit procession to go and collect the groom 
escort him back in another procession, collect his bride, and then to go back to his home again for the wedding ceremony. Plus, the festivities lasted a week. Now, all of that tells you straight away, you're going to need a lot of torches and you're going to need a lot of oil. Particularly since those kind of torches normally only burn for like 15, 20 minutes or so. So having not just a torch, but extra oil would have been well understood in those days. And while they're waiting for him to come, waiting for him to come, you know, eventually they, they all start nodding off and then the cry goes up, he's ready, you know, he's got his clothes on at last, you know, here he comes. But by that point, because he's been delayed, five who haven't taken extra oil suddenly panic. We've got no oil and go to the others and say, hey, can we borrow some of yours? And the others say, no, sorry, we're going to need this. You'll have to go and get some for yourself. So five are ready and allowed to go with the bridegroom, picturing Jesus, and to enter the wedding banquet. Now, the wedding banquet was a common picture in Jewish thought, going right back into Old Testament times and some of the prophets, of what would happen at the end when Messiah came. God would throw this great big wedding banquet for all his people. And so we've got a reference there to that. The bridegroom Messiah has now arrived and those who are ready go in with him to enjoy the banquet. But those who couldn't be bothered to prepare, those who said, ah, we still got time yet. You know, he's been ages. He's not, he's not going to come yet, which is, of course, exactly what people have said, not just in our time, but even within New Testament times. There's evidence in some of the letters that some people were saying, you know, you keep talking about his coming. Well, he's not here yet. What's the point of wasting money on having extra oil ready for it? So they weren't ready. And because they weren't ready, they then try to get into the banquet and find themselves excluded. And the bridegroom saying, I never knew you. Here is a powerful picture, Jesus is saying, of the importance of being ready for his return at any moment. How does he answer the question, you know, when will he return and how will he return? <laughs> well... Let's start with what he doesn't do. He doesn't give us a timescale. So, you know, if anyone wants to show you a timescale of when they think Jesus will return because of this event happening in the world or that event happening in the world, I would say politely ignore it. Because, you know, for 2,000 years, people have been doing that and every single time Christians end up looking foolish because it turns out not to be it. So it strikes me that as we read this parable and as we read similar parables and teaching to Jesus, there are three things that stand out that he teaches us about the, the when and the how. And I normally sum them up as this. First, it will be sudden and unexpected. Second, it will be public and visible. And third, it will be glorious and triumphant. Now, I think those are the three core truths that Jesus teaches. So let's just think about those. It will be sudden and unexpected, like the appearance of that bridegroom. You know, they were all waiting for him, but because he'd taken from their point of view so long, it was very sudden and 
very unexpected. So there's no point in our trying to think, when, is the return of Jesus near? I'm often asked that as a pastor or as a Bible teacher. Do you think that the return of Jesus is near? And my answer is always the same. Well, I know this, it's nearer than it was. And it's nearer today than it was yesterday. But also, I mean, why does it matter if it's near in the sense of it might happen tomorrow or next week? Because if your answer is, it would make me live differently, then the way you're living now is not right. And the point of Jesus' teaching is that he wants us to live in such a way, going about the ordinary stuff of life, that we will always be ready because his return is going to be sudden and unexpected. And all of these parables here underline that truth and, and call us to be ready. It's interesting that even within the New Testament, people were getting caught up with these matters of, of time and when would it be. And in the context of a section in 1 Thessalonians where Paul addresses worries that they had about those who'd already died and would they miss out on the return of Jesus? And he's saying, miss out, they'll be coming with him. And then he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2, now brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, which thief, which burglar would drop a postcard through your letterbox saying, dear householder, I will be in the area this Thursday and I intend to visit your home about two o'clock. Of course he wouldn't. And that image is being used there as a way of saying, just as a burglar doesn't announce when he's gonna come, nor does Jesus. His return will be first of all, sudden and unexpected. So if we don't know when, does it matter how he will return? Well, I think it does because Jesus goes on to make that clear in our second point. It's going to be public and visible. You know, when this bridegroom appears, there's no doubting he has come. And get those flaming torches and lead him on his way. Uh, in the parables that follow, there's no doubting that Jesus has come. There's nothing obscure about the second coming. In fact, in Matthew 24, 27, he says that when he comes, it will be like lightning visible in the sky. Now, any of us who've been in a lightning storm will know those huge lightning flashes that aren't just, you know, a zigzag through the sky, but the whole sky lights up. There is no missing lightning in the sky. And Jesus says there in Matthew 24, 27, that's what my return will be like. It will be utterly public, utterly visible. Now, I'm, I'm going to have to say that for me, that doesn't leave an awful lot of room for this popular idea of the rapture, the secret return of Jesus, when he will come and whisk Christians away to be with him in heaven while the world falls apart and then brings them back. You know, there's no clear teaching at all about a secret return of Jesus. In fact, that teaching really can be traced back to a guy called J.N. Darby, who founded the Brethren Movement in the early 1800s. And it's been popularized since in the USA in the 20th century 
in particular. But I once asked a professor friend of mine who is a professor in early church history and he's access, he has access to powerful search engines to search through all the writings of the early Christians for the first 400 years or so. And I asked him, did the early Christians believe in a secret return of Jesus? And he did a search for me through every writing of the early church fathers. He could find no example. So this really does seem to be a teaching that dates back no earlier than the early 1800s. Very, very popular in many circles in the USA today. It's become popular in many books, therefore, and movies. But I'm really not sure that fits in at all with Jesus's teaching about his return being first sudden and unexpected, second public and visible. But why would his return, as you put it, be glorious and triumphant when, when he came the first time, it was very humbly in Bethlehem? Oh, absolutely. The first time he comes, as we've seen right at the beginning of this series, utterly obscure, wasn't it? An angel being sent to one woman to announce what was going to happen. His mother, Mary, the stories of a quiet birth in, in Nazareth and in being laid in a manger, humble people coming to welcome him. You see, when Jesus came into the world the first time, it was not with the pomp and ceremony that kings and emperors expected in those days. This was a king who came humbly. He would come as a humble servant. But the New Testament says that when Jesus comes back again, he will come back this time, not as the humble suffering servant, but as the glorious reigning king. So it will be utterly different, glorious and triumphant. If I read from Matthew 24 and verse 29, for example, it says, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to another. Nothing secret, nothing humble this time. This is the king coming in glory to wrap everything up and to come as both a king who will judge those who have opposed and resisted him and who will honour and bless those who have welcomed him and lived their lives for him. The where then, the where Jesus will return, is similarly not, not clear. No, it's not. Now, I have to say that there are some Christians who think that it's going to be right here in this place or it will be on the Mount of Olives uh, where the angels said this same Jesus who ascended into heaven will return in like manner. Is it going to be there? So is it going to be at a specific place? I think it's somehow going to be more glorious and more wonderful than that because the scripture tells us that when he returns, every eye will see him. Now, I've heard it said it's possible for that to happen now because Jesus can return here to the temple or to the Mount of Olives and every eye will see him. Why? Because we've all got phones in our pockets. Live streaming can show it. I somehow don't think that that captures the glory of what's going to happen. 
Jesus talks about his return being like lightning filling the whole sky. So I think it's going to be a glorious return that somehow happens in a spiritual dimension that wherever you are in the whole of creation, you will be able to see this event. So the ultimate question is, how does all that have an impact on us today? Well, I suppose I would want to answer that by drawing out what I think Jesus is after teaching in these parables. And I normally sum it up as be warned, be wise and be watchful. Be warned. This return of Jesus really is going to happen. Now, it's not happened yet and it's not happened for 2000 years, but it will happen. And you know, for all of us, even if we're not alive when Jesus returns, all of us will have to face Jesus at that moment of death. And he will want an account of both our faith and our life. And the Bible is very clear that this life is the only life you have to make that choice. So, yeah, there's a solemn part to this. Be warned. Because Jesus is coming back and you need to be ready. And by that, I don't mean you need to be living fearfully that it could be happening any moment. This is not designed to put you in panic mode. This is simply calling us to so be living and walking with Jesus in whatever we are doing at any moment. We know we are his and we are ready. And if any listeners have not yet made that decision, today would be a great time to say, Jesus, I've been hearing about you. But today I want to give my life to you. I believe you died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. I give my life to you and I want to live for you. So be warned. He is coming. You need to be ready. This is the only life you have to prepare for it. Second, be wise. You know, that whole parable of the bridesmaids and the talents that follow is all about, you know, just being wise in how you live. You know, they weren't wise. They didn't do what they were supposed to do as those who were keeping their lamps ready for the bridegroom. I think for us, what does that mean? I think it means get on with life. You don't have to retreat to some holy huddle somewhere. Get on with life, but live life making the right choices. Be wise in what you choose to do. Be wise in what you invest in, what you invest your life in, your time in, your money in. Because the stuff that's invested in this world will one day pass away. But when you invest in Jesus and his kingdom, it's going to last forever. So it's a challenge to, to be wise and to invest our lives in the right thing. And here's the great thing when we do. It is so exciting. There is such a buzz when you do it and there's such a reward when you do it. So be warned, be wise. And thirdly, I'd say, be watchful. You know, that's the message of all these parables in Matthew 24 and 25. Now, that does not mean becoming watchers of the times, you know, reading the papers or watching, you know, on your phone to see, has this country invaded that country? What's this tyrant doing? Oh, look, look what's happening in Israel. You know, some people can get consumed and obsessed with that. It's not about reading the signs. In fact, I often sum it up like this. The things we need to watch are not out there, but in here. I'm saying pointing to my own heart. Be watchful. Be watchful not of times and events. Be watchful of your own heart. 
Be watchful of how you're living. Be watchful of how you're following Jesus. Be watchful of what you're giving your life to. And you know, if you're watchful and keep your eye on that, frankly, it doesn't matter what's going on out there in the world because you'll always be ready. And that, of course, is exactly the point of Jesus's teaching in these parables, that you are always busy and active for him, but always ready for that glorious day when he will return. Well, we've been following the life of Jesus throughout these 52 conversations. We're still here in Jerusalem, but as you come to the end of this journey, what do you most hope anyone listening will be able to take away? Well, I, I hope that in some small way, we've helped bring the story of Jesus alive to them by walking in his footsteps of coming to the places where he himself walked and where he taught. I'm hoping that we'll have helped paint a bit of a picture for them, especially for the many who will never have had the opportunity to visit the Holy Land. But I suppose I'm hoping even more that as we've talked about who Jesus was and what he did and what he taught and how he lived, that it will on the one hand have been an encouragement to those of us who are his followers to continue following him because it's worth it. And a challenge that where we've let things slip to get them back in line with him again. And I really hope that for those who aren't yet followers of Jesus, but must be interested a, a little bit in him to even be listening to these podcasts and to UCB, to take the story of Jesus seriously. And if they've never done so, to now go and read the story of the life of Jesus for themselves in one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as they do so, to say, Jesus, if this story is true and you are real, would you reveal yourself to me? And could the Jesus of then become a Jesus for now, for me? And if that can happen for you, then this journey that we've been on, David, will be really worthwhile. Well, as we conclude, as we've done each time, do pray for us, Mike. Lord Jesus, here in this place, outside those great rampart walls of where the temple once stood and where you taught about your return. Help us to live in light of that return. Help us, we pray, to be warned about it, because it is going to happen. To be wise about it in terms of how we live and to constantly be watchful not so much of events in the world, but of our own lives. And help us, Lord, to live as those who are always ready for your return, because we're always setting our hearts quite simply to do whatever you tell us to do. And if we do that, Lord, then we can trust that we will be ready for that glorious day. Whether it's the day we die and you call us to be with yourself in heaven, or whether we're alive on that glorious day 
when you return and when we will be reunited with all who have believed in you. Jesus, thank you, you are coming back. And thank you for the glorious hope and encouragement that that gives us. We bless you for your promise. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.